Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This week, we share a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program. This session is entitled They Persisted. Authors Julissa Arce, Reina Grande, and Jean Guerrero share their tears and triumphs in the search for the American dream and a new home with moderator Yvonne Ramirez. Julissa Arce is a CNBC and Crooked Media contributor, writer, speaker, and social justice advocate. She is the co-founder and chairman of the Ascend Educational Fund, a college scholarship and mentorship program that assists immigrant students, regardless of their immigration status, ethnicity, or national origin. Julissa is also a board member for the National Immigration Law Center and for College Spring. Prior to becoming an advocate, she built a successful career on Wall Street working at Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch. She is the author of My Underground American Dream, My True Story as an Undocumented Immigrant Who Became a Wall Street Executive and Someone Like Me, How One Undocumented Girl Fought for Her American Dream. Reina Grande is an award-winning novelist and memoirist. In her latest book, The Distance Between Us, Reina writes about her life before and after immigrating from Mexico to the United States. The Distance Between Us is an inspirational coming-of-age story about the pursuit of a better life. Born in Mexico, Reina was two years old when her father left for the United States to find work. Her mother followed her father north two years later, leaving Reina and her siblings behind in Mexico. In 1985, when Reina was going on 10, she entered the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant. She later went on to become the first person in her family to graduate from college. Jean Guerrero is the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir winner of the Pen Fusion Emerging Writers Prize. In Crux, Guerrero explores her father's troubled story. She is an Emmy-winning investigative reporter for KPBS. She contributes to NPR, PBS, and other public media. Her America's Wild series shines a light on the bipartisan nature of U.S.-Mexico border barriers. She was born in California to a Puerto Rican mother and a Mexican father. This is part two of a two-part series. Up first, moderator Yvonne Ramirez asked how the authors wrote about their real-life family members. Jean Guerrero and Julissa Arce respond. Thinking about how you were able to capture your memories and your emotions and then package it into this work of literature. Um, so... The, the emotion pieces are still there, but you, were, you had to take like real human people from your life and convert them into literary devices. Um, do you have any insight to like, how, that, how that process like, happened? One of the things that I learned, so I, I was really lucky. I had this mentor while I was writing the book, and she noticed right away that one of my main motivations that I made clear to her for writing the book was problematic. Um, so I quit my job at the Wall Street Journal and started writing this book in part because I felt this incredible sense of urgency in that moment to save my father. He was 
calling me and telling me that he wanted to die, and he was um, self-medicating with some really dangerous substances. And I felt like, and he made me feel like I was the only person who was, you know, listening to him and, and being there for him. And I felt like, okay, I have to quit my job and I have to write this book so I can give my father a new perception of himself and save him. Hmm. And my mentor was like, you know, it's okay to feel that sense of urgency, but you, it's not a solid foundation from which to write this book. Mm -hmm. If you write this book from that desire to save your father, every sentence that you write is gonna be written from a place of uncertainty. How is he gonna react to this sentence? What if this sentence makes him angry? It's not gonna be the best or most powerful book or the most true book that you can write. And so she was like, you have to find a, a selfish and solid foundation. And so for me, that ended up being simply seeking the truth. And, 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 and what I found was like every layer, there was always a, another layer underneath it. And so she was always asking me, is this, is this the truest truth that you can get to? And the answer was always no. And so I, I was always able to get deeper and deeper. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just one of the most remarkable things about writing this book was this realization that we, we are so convinced in our lives that we know, that we know, <laughs> that we know the people around us, that we know what motivates us. And, and if we start to question that, it, it, it's just this really rewarding process. It, it, was, it was for me. Yeah, well, um, Reina is not just an amazing writer, but she's also a mentor of mine. And when she was reading some of my, some of my work, she'd be like, uh, I have no idea what this person even looks like, or everything that you're thinking of them, like it's just in your head. And so you've got to really take what you, what you picture of this person and actually make them come alive. Um, and so thank you, Reina, because I think my characters are alive because of um, all of your guidance. Um, but... Uh, you know, one one of the so like with my dad, for example, you know, I just shared like how he used to like he hit me with a spoon, right? And and then so that already in your mind, he's this like maybe bad person, but they're like these people are human beings, right? So my dad also taught me how to drive, and he. Uh, he always wanted to have a son, and he didn't have a son until much later uh, in my life and in his life. And so he would like dress me up in little overalls, and he would teach me how to change the oil in our car and how to change a flat tire. And he taught me how to drive, and he taught me how to cook. And he was like, he was also this like amazing person who taught me so many things in my life that I wouldn't know. And I think that the reason why I've never felt like I've, I, I have always felt like I can do anything a man can do, and that comes from my dad, and from him never limiting me in the things that he taught me, or like le girls learn these things and boys learn those things, right? So, um, so my my challenge was to not paint my dad uh, as this like bad character in the book that people weren't going to be able to like because I loved my dad. I mean, I had a very complicated relationship with him, but I loved him. And so that was my, one of my biggest challenges was, um, was making him like a full, a full human being and a full person that people could, could, uh, could love and could also be mad at him for, for some of his behaviors the way that I was. Um, so that was one big challenge. And the other one was really um, 
picking and choosing what stories I was going to tell about someone uh, to make you see them as a full person that weren't like so repetitive, right? So um, for with my sister, actually, in, um, in someone like me, there were like six chapters that I wrote that my editor cut. And that was so painful because I spent so much time writing the six chapters and for her to just be like, you don't need this one, you don't need that one, you don't need that one. I was like, no, <laughs> um, it's okay. I, I guess I'll use that for another book. Um, but one of, like, with my sister, one of the stories that I really, really wanted to have in the book was a story of when she was uh, 13 and I was eight and we took a bus from our hometown, Tasco to Iwala, which is like a 30 minute, uh, 30 minutes uh, 30 minutes away and we got on the wrong bus which was not a direct bus so it was like this this um, this really old bus that stopped like every 10 minutes I got a different little town it didn't go through the main road I was so sick on this bus and we got to Iwala we bought a puppy and then got back on the bus and went back to Tasco with a puppy. And like nobody, none of the, my parents weren't there. And my sister, who was the oldest sister, was with her boyfriend. And I'm like, how is it possible that two young girls could get on a bus, go buy a puppy? Nobody noticed. And when we had a puppy, it was like the puppy had always been there. Like nobody <laughs> asked us about this puppy. And, and I really wanted to tell that story because I thought it was like really endearing and like fun story to tell. It didn't make the book um, because there was like no real point in the story you know? <laughs> it was just a funny story that now I can tell in panels um, but it was painful not to keep that story in but as a writer that that for me has been a big challenge sort of understanding what stories have a point in the story that you're trying to tell in the book because both of these books are about my life but they're about very different parts of my life and it's a different story I'm trying to tell in each one and so while I find some things interesting it, it might not help me to advance the story that I'm trying to tell in this particular book or in that particular book and that's something that I'm still that I'm still learning do you guys have plans to do uh, future books what 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 do your future plans include Right now. Reina Grande. Well, can I say something about what Julissa just said about cutting out chapters? Because I had to cut some chapters out of this book, too. And I saved them, and I put them in this book as flashbacks. <laughs> so flashbacks for your next one. So don't, yeah, don't throw anything away. You could throw it in the compost bin. <laughs> Yeah, so um, what was the question? What are oh, we doing now? Yeah, future projects. We? Yeah, um, well, I have, been, uh, I have been trying to grow as a writer and step out of my comfort zone. And I was really comfortable writing books because that's what I've been doing, you know, uh, writing uh, very long 400, 350 page manuscripts. And I, I was really terrified of short pieces like uh, articles, essays, op-eds. They frightened me because I didn't know what I could say in 1,500 words. I needed, you know, 100,000 words, not 1,500. So I was always afraid of that format. And, and these past two years, I have been challenging myself to tackle that and to get more comfortable writing essays. And I wrote a five-page essay for an anthology, and it took me a month 
to write a five-page essay. And then um, last month, I got asked to contribute another essay for an anthology, and I wrote it in one day. <laughs> 11 pages in one day. It was a first draft, and then I spent a week revising, and I thought, oh, I'm getting faster at this. And then I've also been writing 1,500-word uh, pieces for, like, I had a, a, an op-ed in the New York Times. I just had a, another op-ed on CNN that came out a few days ago. And I'm starting to feel comfortable with that. So I'm really glad that I'm challenging myself and in going a different direction. Julissa so. Arce. Um. I thought that I, I wanted to write a novel because I was like tired of talking about myself. And then I sat down to try to write a novel from a dog's perspective. So the dog was gonna be the narrator in this novel. And I just, I, I seriously, the first sentence after sitting in front of my computer was, I saw the woman and I barked, woof, woof. <laughs> and I was like, the oh. end. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, uh, I just need to keep writing about myself. Um, so I'm, I'm, I am working, I'm working on a collection of essays uh, about the, the battle wounds of assimilation um, and just all of the different things that, that, that are different when you assimilate. So one of the, um, I'll give you a little spoiler in, in, in the book um, where I, I finally tell a boyfriend that uh, I'm undocumented. And uh, you know he's very kind about it at first. And a couple of years later when I found out he was cheating on me and I threatened to call the woman whose phone number I found in a suitcase in his apartment, um, he threatened to call INS. Oh my God. Yeah. So as you can tell, dating when you're undocumented is, uh, difficult already on top of how it is just to date in general um, and so I'm writing a whole essay about what it was like to date as someone who was undocumented and even then after I became a citizen uh, and but you know now I'm a citizen now my life is very public so as I'm trying to date again like how do I develop a relationship with someone in the age of social media where like if they google my name they will know everything about me um, so I'm writing an essay about that I'm writing an essay about uh, what I shared earlier about my accent coming back and 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 what it means to like learn how to speak English how do you answer the question where are you from from like where are you from from uh, so so I'm writing I'm, I'm working on a connection of a collection of essays to talk uh, to to really um, explore each of these issues in more depth. Jean Guerrero. So I, when I was shopping this book around, um, about half of the editors who were interested told me that they, they would make an offer if I made the focus my mother instead of my father. <laughs> So, and my answer to that was always like, I, I can't do that because, <laughs> um, like, like, even though it is true that my mother is the reason that I'm here today and that I'm, you know, on solid ground because she's, she's a doctor and she was always, she, she was our rock, me and my sister. Um, but I was like, it, it, would, it would be dishonest to make her the focus because really, like, as, up until I was about 24, 25 years old, I, I was obsessed with figuring out my father. Um, so my next book is, is, is going to be the exploration of my relationship with my mother, um, which I always said is, is way more complicated than my relationship with my father because it has so many great things but also some really difficult things. And... I always said I didn't want to write about that until I had children of my own. 
Um, but I think I'm going to start gra <laughs> grappling with it. I, I've started already. Just looking at the way that my mother was profoundly wounded by my father and just all the injustice that she experienced as, as, his, as the woman who loved him and just how she forgave him over and over and over again and the damage that that did, the damage that the forgiveness did um, and, and exploring those ideas. Okay, so before we move on to the audience questions, do you all have anything you want to ask each other? We talk all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talk all the time, too. We yeah. got it. Cool. All right, so from the audience, we have a few minutes, maybe a couple of questions. You are listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled They Persisted. On 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Reina Grande was asked to talk about the emotional distance between her and her parents. Yeah, yeah. so what, what I had mentioned uh, last, last panel yesterday was about the fact that when my parents left, I spent so many years longing for them. And when they came back to me, they were not the same parents who had left me. So you never really get your parents back. You know, once that family separation happens, it changes the dynamics of the family and it changes the relationship. So I feel that even to this day, there's still that little girl in me that's longing for her parents to come back. And, and it's been a struggle and all through, through my life, it has been such a struggle to come to terms with that, with that loss and to know how much our, our relationship was altered and to know that um, I need to learn how to accept my parents for who they are and not for who I want them to be. And that has been part of my uh, maturing, you know, to finally stop um, expecting my parents to be something that they're not. And, and I know that while they were gone, and this happens with absent parents where you began to imagine what they're like because they're not there. So then you create like, you know, an idealized version of your parents. You start to romanticize the idea of them. You put them on a pedestal and, and they, they grow bigger than life. And then once you are with the real people, they don't measure up to that ideal image that you have of them. So I struggle with that too, and that, that was part of the, the conflict in my family of me coming to terms with the reality of who my parents were and who I had thought they were gonna be. And um, one, one thing that has really helped me as a writer is to think of my relationship with my parents as, something, as a work in progress. And when I don't like the way the story's going, I just uh, give them a blank sheet of paper and say, let's start again. Let's write a new story. Julissa Arce. Yeah, so, so the question is, like, was there a particular moment at which, at which I uh, sort of decided to embrace uh, the parts of my culture that I had lost as I assimilated, right? Is that kind of the... Um, and so it wasn't like... Well, it, it, it really wasn't like one specific moment. I think it's been somewhat of a process. But if I can sort of pinpoint it to one moment, it's when um, in, in, 
after I had been working at Goldman for a year, and I got like my bonus for the year, and it was like, I don't know, it was like some crazy number, and my eyes like popped out of my sockets, and I was like, oh my god, the American dream, like it worked, and uh, and a few weeks later, I get this letter from the IRS saying my name and my social security number don't match because I was using fake papers to work at Goldman, and um, and I remember just feeling so much pain getting this letter because I felt like it didn't matter how much I had accomplished, right? I thought I had done everything this country had asked of me. I had learned how to speak English. I had gone to college. I had become a, uh, a contributing member of society, and it didn't matter how much I had done. There were still people who, uh, who didn't want me here. I, there still wasn't any way for me to fix my immigration status or to, um, or to you know, become a permanent resident or a citizen. And then I finally became a citizen. And even now, there are people who will write me comments like, you know, you should have never been allowed to become a citizen, uh, or you should be deported, or you should not be here. And so I kind of I have decided that, I think it's been a combination of all of those things that I've come to this point in my life where I think, I'm never going to be good enough for some people. You know, I'm never going to be American enough for some people. And so I just need to stop trying to be this version of America that some people want me to be. Because every time I reach that, then the, the, the goal line changes, right? There's something else I've got to do. And so, I, and so because of all these experiences I've had, I've come to the point in my life now where I say, you know what, I am American. This person who didn't have a social security number, this person who you know, has an accent, came from Mexico, and like all of these things that I am, like I am American whether some people like it or not. And so I am going to create my own version of what that means to me. Reina Grande. Yeah, I, I really struggle with Spanish. And it's something that I've been writing a lot about is my, my very complicated relationship with my mother tongue. Because like, like many um, uh, immigrant children in the US, I was shamed into learning English and giving up my mother tongue. So I experienced something that, that uh, is called subtractive bilingualism, which is when you replace your mother tongue with, with another language. So instead of learning another language in addition to the one you know, you're replacing that second language. Um, and it was a very traumatic experience for me, and it's impacted me in many, many different ways. So I have been struggling with that and really trying to reconnect again with, with Spanish. And I, uh, I struggle a lot when I go to Mexico, for example, and I'm, I'm speaking Spanish. I'm translating from English to Spanish when I go. And over there, like people are always asking me, oh, eres gringa, you're American, you're American. I'm gonna say, no, I'm Mexican, I was born here. And they're like, no, no, you're American. And then when I'm here, and no matter how much I try to speak English without an accent, I'm always too Mexican, right? And, and, and I'm not American enough. So then um, a couple years ago, I went to Spain to do a keynote there at a conference. And when I was speaking Spanish over there, the Spaniards would say, oh, you're Mexican. And I said, finally, I'm Mexican. So I think I'm going to move to Spain, because over there, I'm really Mexican. Jean Guerrero. And I, I had a similar experience where I, with, with the subtractive bilingualism, because I, I, my first language was Spanish, but I went to a school where they 
taught us that speaking Spanish was against the rules, and if you spoke Spanish, you were going to get detention, um, and you had to write a hundred times, I will not speak Spanish, I will not speak Spanish. So I started to associate Spanish with, with being bad, with delinquency, and so I just, I was like, I never want to speak Spanish. Like, even with my mom, I started speaking English when she would speak to me in Spanish. Um, and it wasn't until I started to gravitate towards Mexico as a way to explore my absent father that I realized that this this culture that I had grown up with with piñatas and you know mariachis like it was something that was a part of me and felt familiar to me and that I, I, I wanted to re recapture it I guess and so I started Eventually, I moved to Mexico, and even though for years I started, eventually English became my primary language, and now I speak Spanish with an accent. Um, but when I moved to Mexico City, I was able to sort of regain the fluency of, of my Spanish language. Oh, uh, we have time for one more. Yes, ma'am. Reina Grande. Yeah, uh, so the question was, what are some things that educators and administrators can do to support their undocumented students? Or like first generation? Yeah, for, or first generation university students. I had a very interesting experience in college because my English professor took me to live with her. And it was because I was having, I was going through a really difficult time at home. You know, the, um, a lot of times students drop out of school because of all their family problems. And I was going through a very difficult time. My father was arrested and I felt that my life was falling apart. And I went to talk to my professor at her office and I almost didn't knock on the door because I felt so ashamed to share with her my personal life and, and how messed up it was. And I forced myself to knock on her door and she opened and, and I just wanted someone to talk to, someone to give me advice and, and to, and to um, just be able to um, Como se dice desahogarse, you know, desahogarme, and, and, to, and to let out what I was feeling and just sharing it with someone who could listen to me. And my professor was so concerned about me and my, my future, and she said, I've seen too many students drop out of school because of their family problems. I don't want that to happen to you. And she said, do you want to come live with me? And I went home and I packed up my bags and I moved into um, in with my, my college professor. So I, I don't, you know, when I do, I do a lot of keynotes for teacher conferences, and I always say, you don't have to take your students home <laughs> to help them. Um, but, you know, but, but here's an example of a professor who went above and beyond the, the, the work description, right, her job description. And to this day, I mean, I've known this woman for over 20 years, and she has been always an important part of my life. She continues to support me in every way, and she's an English professor, so she has to read everything I ever write and proofread it because she says that she doesn't want me to ruin my reputation with bad grammar. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, I, I feel that, you know, it's just being really aware of your students, um, listening to them, keeping the, your office door open for them and to let them know that they can come to you. 
with anything, that you will be there for them to listen. Julissa Arce. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, no, I, I never shared when I was in college with anyone that I was undocumented because you know, this is uh, 15 years ago, and so there was no like dreamer movement. There, there were no dream resource centers at colleges. It was just something you didn't talk about, right? Um, but I did have a lot of friends who were first-generation college students and who had somewhat similar situations at home than I did. Uh, the, uh, and so the place where I really felt like I, I found my community and I found uh, a place to belong and what I really think got me through college was the Hispanic Business Students Association and everyone that I met in that, in that student group. And so I think that one of the most important things that colleges can do is to support student groups uh, because sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we don't, we don't, we don't need or want uh, an adult, an administrator, uh, to be in these conversations, right? We want to talk to each other, but we do need your support in creating those spaces, right? So sometimes, to me, I think being an ally is as much as being a part of it as it's know when to pass the mic and just simply create the space and let it grow on its own and being there when, when it's needed, right? Like, as a student group, we needed a lot of support to whenever we wanted to have some sort of event, we needed the support of the administration, the school's administration, to help us even provide the space, for example, or help us find sponsors for the food or whatever we were doing. So, And I think sometimes um, administrators, uh, frankly, like they want to be the ones to be doing those things because they want to say, I did these things for the students. Uh, and sometimes that's not what we need. Like Sometimes the, the, the most important thing is just to help us create those spaces and then let us lead them uh, and let us be amongst our peers leading those spaces. And so I think that's one uh, one thing that I was really glad that UT, the University of Texas where I went to school, was really good at, at letting us do that. Um, and I, I mean, I really, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for HBSA and the students that I met there. Thank you, authors. Thank You'll you, participants. You'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestra Raices program entitled They Persisted. Authors Julissa Arce, Reina Grande, and Jean Guerrero discussed their lives and their writing with moderator Yvonne Ramirez. This has been part two of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org.